How do you go from being a delinquent dropout, scrounging chains just to keep your van running so you can make it to the next climbing spot, to owning one of the largest indoor climbing gym chains in the US and getting paid almost six figures to host leadership seminars for companies like Google? Chris Horner has summited the tallest mountains on earth and he's guided others there too, both to the tops of mountains and to the peaks of leadership performance. Now he's opening the biggest climbing gym in North America under his Earthtrex chain. It's safe to say Chris is high on life and living large. In this episode, he tells us how he got there, and we dive deep on the revenue and management side of things, two issues many of us outdoor enthusiasts overlook when launching a business around our passions. Get ready to take notes. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Chris, when I started this podcast and kind of figured out that it was going to be more than just cycling industry, people that I wanted to interview, and the, the idea of being for adventurous entrepreneurs, like what you do and the pictures you sent me of you climbing some of the biggest mountains in the world is like, is exactly what I was picturing in my head. So um, I'm super excited to get you on because, you know, like I learned about you from some articles I saw about your most recent business endeavor, which we'll get on later in the show, but it's, then I started reading about all these other things you've done and it's, it's quite a story. So probably the, the best way to start would be rather than me try and fudge through it is if you just want to kind of rattle off some of the, the biggest climbing accomplishments you've done to give people a sense of what sort of adventures you go on, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I, so I've led over 200 international mountaineering expeditions and I've guided Everest, I actually guided the first ever reality TV show on Everest. So I uh, helped put the nail in the coffin of Everest in terms of commercializing it. <laughs> and then I've summited K2 and um, I don't know how much you guys are into mountaineering, but there's 14, 8,000 meter peaks. I've summited five of those. And one of them, Shishapangma, I was the first American to ever solo an 8,000 meter peak. So it went from the top to the bottom nonstop in about 16 hours and 40 minutes. and took me 17 hours and 20 minutes to, to come back down it but that was literally like you would imagine a, a hardcore mountaineering climb where you're using two ice axes and you're kicking your steps in the whole way and you're doing it without ropes so it was pretty it was it was really pretty extreme and you know i'm at the age now of 52 and i'm not moving the sport forward anymore that way but i really am proud of the fact that i was able to put up new routes in the himalayas and you know, tried to really push myself as, as, as an athlete as hard and fast as I possibly could. Yeah, and you've also not just led expeditions and stuff, but you've also gone on rescue missions to get other people out of trouble. Yeah, I mean, that's the sad part. I, I actually stopped counting in, I think it was 2000, after I'd witnessed over 20 people die on big peaks. Um, I've never personally lost a single partner, thank God. But, yeah, I've been there, held people in my hands that they've died. I've been there for, you know got there too late you know i've been there to do the cleanup work and you know it's it's a it's really a, i i i think those experiences have probably impacted me more than summits have uh, one a good example is we were on k2 in 2002 and we were all strapping our crampons on at the base of the peak and all of a sudden one of the guys next to me just started to scream and we looked up literally through the clouds and k2 is so steep and this body was falling through the air and it probably went a thousand feet before it smashed into the wall the first oh, time and it was just a gigantic explosion of red and then it bounced you know another 800 feet another 300 feet another 500 feet or so and it came to rest 500 feet above us and you know we ran up to the body and it was the most traumatized person i've ever seen that his hips were literally pulverized it was 
legs were tucked up underneath his back and his feet were coming out by his shoulders and the back of his head was what was the source of all his blood so his nothing fit the eyes and the you know the lips everything was kind of in the wrong place and you know we had to take that body and to you know i don't know to, to, to just to treat it in the most respectful way that you could ever imagine and I even remember the very first time I had a person die in my hands and I literally felt his soul move through my body. And at that moment, I realized that our job is to push as much love into people as we possibly can, especially the last emotion anybody should feel when they leave this earth is love. Just like when your baby is born, right? You have kids, I have kids. So when this child is born, you you feel I don't know, it's like the most amazing life experience you've ever been through it's like this universal miracle you know it's all about love and excitement and anxiety and all this cool stuff that kind of comes together so i think people need to leave this earth feeling all that same amount of love that they felt on their way in just that their their, their journey to wherever their next stop is is just as you know as great as it possibly can be so there's so many lessons i've gotten out of mountaineering and, you know, it's not just about getting to the summit, as I said. It's all these things along the way that form who you are as a person. That's yeah, awesome. I mean, the, the real trick is giving that amount of love to people all day, every day, right? That's, yeah. Why yeah, not? I, yeah, and I think you, for us, it's, it's easier to do when you've really been humbled. Like, you've had these tremendous failures in life, and you've had, you know, times when you really needed other people's love. So Right. You know, I, I think the coolest thing about mountaineering is that failure is built into the formula. Like, I just came back from two months in the Himalaya. We're on the third highest peak in the world. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, even though it was the perfect day, I mean, I literally was taking layers off. It was so warm. And we were, you know, at eight, over 8,000 meters. Well, suddenly we ran out of rope. And it was like, oh, my goodness, everything is going our way except this one piece. And now we failed as a result of this. And, you know, you got to come home and live with that failure. So I've been... I, I, those failures keep me humble for certain. Yeah, it probably keeps your mind turning too. Like, what, how did I mess this up? Something so uh, simple. <laughs> yeah, and I definitely take responsibility, even though it was a there was a lot of people involved in that. Yeah. And so, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't well, fun. How did you get into climbing in the first place? Oh, probably how you got into outdoor sports. The parole officer first took me out climbing, and then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so they're trying to they're right? trying to society was trying to yeah society was trying to get back at me for being a knucklehead so in 10th grade um there was a knock on the door and 12 of us were dragged out in the woods for five days and it was the most impactful experience i'd ever had i mean it, i literally it was like a light bulb going off for me and i ended up turning around when i was 17 and working for that same outdoor program and really that's i i knew at 15 that i wanted to spend the rest of my life giving people these impactful outdoor adventure experiences so they could have a clue as to how powerful they really are. Awesome. And then, um, yeah. so from there, like how old were you before you started doing some of these bigger expeditions on your own or, or like for personal fun, not as a business, like leading people? Yeah. So the first big peak I ever climbed, you know, big, I guess by most people's standards was the Grand Teton. So I was a freshman in college. I told my mother I was going to college early. And if you knew anything about me as a student, you know this is completely a, a bunch of who. And I hitchhiked to Wisconsin, to Wyoming and climbed the Grand Teton with some friends of mine. And, um, you know, I confessed at Christmas to my mother that I didn't go to college early. I went to Wyoming. I told her all about climbing the Grand Teton. And she's like, what's the Grand Teton? And like, oh, it's this mountain. And she started asking this crazy old uncle of mine. And he's like, listen, Barbara, Grand Teton is French for big boobs. <laughs> so I got in tons of trouble from my mother for the totally wrong reason. <laughs> so, so that was when I was 17, and I've just been doing it ever since. I mean, I went to outside the United States to Peru in, in the summer of uh, 1987, so I turned 23 when I was there. And then I was in northern India and Nepal when I was 25, climbing new routes on big peaks. And then, you know, I've been at it, you know, nonstop since then. So how, how were you paying for those trips and those expeditions are you you know well, supposed to be in college first, or just it, after yeah the first so i put myself through college so had no money i was um in the last day of college in the summer of or in the spring of 2007 i went to my mailbox and there was a letter from the financial aid office said that you have a 500 dollars grant 
So I called the financial aid office. I was like, this is ridiculous. I've taken all my ex- final exams. They're like, no, technically, school doesn't end until 3 o'clock this afternoon. We have to give this money away. If you can be here by, in, it was like an hour and a half, I had to get to the financial aid office. If you get here, we'll give you a check for 500 bucks. So I got on my bicycle, raced over to school, got my check for 500 bucks, called up my best friend, Danny. I'm like, Danny, Danny, like I got $500. Let's go to South America. <laughs> so we, we piled a bunch of us in my 69 Volkswagen van. We drove from Boulder, Colorado to, we tried to get to Miami. It broke down first in Kansas, then it broke down again in Tennessee. It eventually died on us in Georgia. And so we then hitchhiked to an airport, flew to South America, um, came back two months later. I hitchhiked from Miami to New Jersey where my family was and worked for two months in a, or for a couple of weeks in a, uh, a factory that made generic Kool-Aid and saved up enough money to buy a transmission. Then got on a bus, Greyhound bus with a transmission and all my mountaineering gear back to Georgia, fixed my old bus, which was sitting in a parking lot, and then drove back to school in Colorado. So it was, it was every time I went overseas forever, it was some scam like that, like, all right, I don't have any money. We'll figure out how to make it work out. One oh, time I got, I was about to leave for Nepal. And um, it was like two hours before I was going to leave. And the Baltimore Sun, I was living in Maryland at the time, Baltimore Sun called me up and said, hey, what do you think about sending dispatches back? And I literally was $1,000 short of the amount of money I needed for this trip. I said, great, I'll send dispatches back. It's going to cost you $1,000. And they're like, great, no problem. We'll give you $1,000. <laughs> yeah. There was always some kind of crazy story like that. That's nuts. So yeah, it's just, it just like, I, you know, I think, and I'm sure uh, just listen to your podcast. A lot of the people that you've interviewed are the same thing. It's like, don't let money stand in your way. No, like, that's a stupid excuse not to do what you want to do. Yeah. And it's great that you can figure it out along the way. I mean, that's, that's half the fun of it really is you just say, I'm going to do this and then figure it out. And I think that's where so many people get hung up and they don't actually start because they just don't know what to do. And it's like, you know, if you just, pretend for a second right like if I were going to do this what would be the first step and then that ultimately then you figure out what the second step is and the third step and that's how it becomes easy yeah yeah and and look the the, the, <clears throat> the journey's never a straight path so oh god no yes so you really <laughs> just all right go out there and take a couple of lumps and you know find out that your product stinks or whatever it happens to be and then you know course correct and keep going i mean look i've done a lot of work with google i mean google will tell you all the time it's iterate 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 so they know that they're not going to launch anything that's perfect they're going to learn stuff that they think is okay and then they're going to take feedback and make it better and better and better How, what are you doing i'm curious now are you wearing that satellite backpack for them up into the, some of these trips they'll map the backcountry or no, I do tons of leadership work. So I've done work with covert ops teams and special ops teams and, uh, you know, NFL coaches and NHL teams. And uh, most Fortune 100 companies have hired me. So it depends on what I'm doing for them. But I've done three different projects with Google, for example. And generally, it's to help them, their team, become even a higher performance team. So there's two groups that generally hire me, teams that are, you know, 99% amazing, and they're desperate to get one-tenth of 1% better. And so they'll look to really lots of people to help them get a little bit better. And then there's the teams that are some massive inflection point, like, oh, my God, our biggest customer just went bankrupt. And, you know, or this, you know, massive things, or terrible things are happening. And if we don't change dramatically tomorrow, we're going to be out of business. So those two groups are great because they all need to change. And so they will take anything that you give them and they'll apply it. So those are the kind of companies that are groups that I work with. Okay, cool. Well, let's, I, I got a few more questions about that, but we'll, we'll get there because I feel like that's yeah. further down your story. So from going on these personal trips, how did you first turn that into a business where you started guiding others or coaching others on this? Yeah, so I'd almost say it's the opposite way it happened for me. So I started as an outdoor educator. So, you know, taking kids in the, you know, high school kids in the woods or literally taking kids out of prison into the woods and then um first for a company out of new jersey called project use and then eventually for outward bound and so i had i don't know seven or eight years of just working with groups in the woods and then in i came back from the himalayas in the end of or beginning of 1991 so we just had done a winter ascent of a new route on a peak called amada blam and um we i got back to the united states and i kept thinking like i really want to start my own business and so 
and I wanted to teach. I wanted to work with non-juvenile delinquents. <laughs> so I thought it'd be fun to just take normal adults out in the woods. And I had done this part-time for a while under the name Earth Checks, but I just couldn't, you know, cut the umbilical cord to my full-time job at Outward Bound. And one of my coworkers said to me, you know, Chris, for somebody who takes such extreme risks with your personal life, why won't you take one with your professional life? And it was like a light bulb went off. Like, wow, they just shamed me. They were they're 100% correct. And, you know, literally, I just came off what was the hardest thing done in the Himalayas that year, and I wouldn't start my own business. <laughs> so, yeah. So, anyway, put it all back in perspective for me. Yeah. So, was that the, that the moment when you started Earth Treks or whatever it was called at the time? To yeah, well, I was, I was doing it part-time in 1990, and then 1991, I did it way more aggressively part-time with the idea of of becoming full-time and so it was 90 91 were part-time 92 was full-time and in 92 you know i don't know what was going on but everything went in my what direction because we i had i think i did five international trips that year with groups and plus teaching local rock climbing and out you know ice climbing trips and then it just kept growing from there so on these trips like what is what's the process if say me and two buddies wanted to hire you or, or sign up for whatever the next trip was. Is it, is it all custom? Like do we contact you and say, Hey, we want to go climb this and then you package it. Or do you have pre-existing trips and people sign up to go? Okay. Well, we've changed our model. We've completely evolved over the years. So for 25 years, we ran an international guide service as well as an outdoor climbing school. And, um, so we started by doing a lot of that stuff and realized that was a really good way to make no money. And then in we then transformed. So the last bunch of years, we really specialized in doing leadership development expeditions and fundraisers for organizations like Livestrong. And so we would take, you know, 16 people to Kilimanjaro or 12 people to Cotopaxi in Ecuador. And we loved... You know, in the beginning, it was doing, like, ridiculously super hard stuff with people, like taking off the Matterhorn or, you know, stuff like that. And then it became, let's just take people on these amazing adventures where it really was about their lives being, like, completely turned around or enriched. Not turned around, but just, like, completely enriched. And so when you take a group of people who, you know, survivors of cancer or lost family members to cancer, and you put them all together through this experience on Kilimanjaro, suddenly you have this, I mean, it's so emotive. And... It just, it, it's just transformational for people. And when you're part of that experience, when you're facilitating that, um, you know, it's, it's good for your soul. That's how I'm going to get to heaven if I haven't done that work. Nice. And is that still what your company does? Is that type of thing nowadays? Well, we made a decision in the end of 19, or excuse me, uh, about two years ago, so it's in the 2015, we made a decision to actually stop doing and focusing on the indoor gym business. So we started as an outdoor guide service, and in 1997, we opened our first indoor climbing gym. And we now have five of those. We have two more that are being built in the next couple of months. And then um, we're going to keep, we want to keep growing that business. And there's such a, not just a tremendous opportunity, like the, 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 the demand is just so much greater than the supply. And we feel like we have a premium product, and we've, basically set the whole thing up so that we can go national with it all right cool yeah and, and again you're getting ahead of me a little bit um <laughs> sorry so so even though the, the guy in the expedition stuff isn't your current business model i have some questions because i feel like there's yeah. there's a lot of people that have a passion for something and can lead others or teach others you know along those ways so for like yours where you were taking them international i imagine so there's uh must be somebody at the door here i'm my brother-in-law's the um you know, like getting everybody organized, is it just a matter of giving them a list? Say, hey, you need visas or you need your passports, you need this, that, and the other. And then as far as like getting permits, is it difficult to get permits? Well, for what it, you I'll did tell you, it's, it's a lot easier to operate outside the United States than it is to operate inside the United States because of the permit issue. Huh. So if you wanted to just say, okay, I'm going to take somebody up Mount Rainier, forget it. That's not happening. Like, you, you know, the only way to do that is to do it illegally. So, but if I wanted to take somebody up, say, Cotopaxi in Ecuador, then I could do that. So I, I personally have been to the summit of Cotopaxi over 50 times, and I, I think 
Urchex probably has led, you know, 150 groups on Cotopaxi, not more. So, um, yeah, it was a lot easier for us to operate internationally. That's weird because I know, like, for mountain bike guys, I, I threw a lot of Europe and stuff. You know, if there's a guide in Spain, they may be right on the border of another country, but they cannot lead a trip into that other country, or they could potentially get in a lot of trouble, or they can't, uh, you know, they can't take people on guided trips without like all these permits and licenses to do that and stuff. So. Yeah, it's the same way in the United States. Which is good. It's you know, it's good and bad. I think it's you know, ultimately, I think for the consumer, it's probably better. Yeah, well, I would think so. I mean, I'm not a fan of overregulation, but I feel like there there needs to be safety standards in place when you're potentially putting someone's life in danger. Yes, yes, and I think we also obviously we have a a, a finite resource, um, and so I think if we brought two, you know, we have to have some know, governors on the using these resources yeah let's turn to the gyms then the like how did you get the idea to open your first gym what was the impetus for that so in 1995 which can seem like forever to your listener but um i i back in the late 80s i was at the university of colorado boulder i taught climbing in places like el dorado canyon and you know boulder canyon i went back in 1995 and um, I realized that all the guide services, the people that I used to be friends with there, were all out of business. And I started asking around, like, what happened? Like, why did this climbing school get shut down? Like, oh, a climbing gym opened in town, and it took away the, you know, all of our customers. I was like, holy cow, I have an outdoor guide service. I better open an, a climbing gym, otherwise someday I'll be out of business. And so uh, shortly after that, I was on Mount McKinley or Denali with a client, and we were at 14,000 feet and we got stuck in a blizzard for six days. And, you know, after ran out, you know, read through every book and memorized the ingredients of Fig Newtons and we were completely <laughs> blown away. This guy was a, uh, you know, he was a billionaire real estate developer. And I brought up the topic of, you know, climbing gyms. He's like, oh my God, this is great. We have something to talk about. And so the only paper we had was toilet paper. We had a Sharpie marker and we literally wrote, the projections for a climbing gym on toilet paper. I shoved them all in a Ziploc bag. And he's like, if you get me out of here alive and you can prove to me you could pay me back within five years, I'll lend you the money it's going to take to get this business started. So um, we got out of there alive. I spent the summer working on an Excel spreadsheet and uh, faxed it up to him on a Friday afternoon. And 15 minutes later, he called me up. He's like, you know what? I'll, I'll give you the money. <laughs> so... That's how we were able to open the first gym. And back then it was cheap. It was $400,000 to open a world-class climbing gym. Today, that same climbing gym would cost you, you know, four to $8 million. So. Yeah, I was going to say, your gyms aren't small. And they're, they're insanely um, well-decorated with holes. And I just, like, I know what those cost because I built a little bouldering wall inside our office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cheap. Um, yeah, we spent... Well, we, we spent <coughs> You know, depending on the size of the gym, we'll spend basically a quarter of a million dollars on handholds to get us. That's nuts. Yeah. So the, the, um, now I'm curious because you live in Colorado now. I know you're all over the place, but like yeah. what made you open up your first ones out on the East Coast if you were well, living in the West? Yes. Yeah, so, so I helped start the Arab Bound School in Baltimore back in 1986. And then I kept coming back to Baltimore over you know, every you know, basically summers and then full time. Um, through the late 80s and early 90s. So I was living in Maryland and started Earthshucks in Maryland. And then, you know, I was, it was great because I was, you know, the, there were so many potential clients there. And, you know, either the work was in Maryland or Virginia or, you know, going up to New England to go ice climbing or going to Ecuador to go climbing or wherever. So it didn't really matter where I lived, um, except it was smarter to live near the people. And then it wasn't until 2010 that the business was, you know, I don't think it had anything to do with the business, really. It had more to do with my wife saying, let's just, let's go. Let's move to Colorado. So we moved to Colorado in 2010. Okay, cool. The uh, I'm jumping back. Cause sorry, I was making my notes, or having my wife write my notes while we were driving out here, because we're in Colorado right now. And um, so they're sort of bouncing all over. But real quick, back on the trips and stuff, because yeah. how did you figure out how to price those? Because it sounds like, you know, like, are the people bringing their own equipment? Are you providing the equipment? Like, 
How'd well, every 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 chip is a little bit different, and I would say that most people price the wrong way, which is how we did it. So you go online, you figure out what all your competitors are charging, you charge the same thing. And What's the right way to do it? Well, <clears throat> you might find out that your competitors are totally content to be, uh, you know, poor or they're terrible business people, or so whoever set the cost might have no clue as to the true or the set the price said no true the idea of the true cost and over time as we ran the business we realized okay this is we, we have to change the model now that we know the true cost then we have to actually adjust the price to represent the true cost right did do you think there's a way to at least quasi accurately figure out what the costs are to do something like that or do you really need to do a couple of them to I think what you realize at first is that you, you know, you do the simple things, right? Like you say, okay, great. It's going to cost me this much to fly. It, it doesn't matter what business you're in, right? You're like, okay, my rent is going to be this much. My product, my supplies are going to be this much. And then you generally completely discount the labor and, you know, the amount of prep and cleanup time that you have in any of these activities. And so that's why over time you realize, okay, what I built was a hobby you know, I didn't build a business. And then eventually you have to say, okay, how do I turn my hobby into a business? I, you know, the product is good, but it's not sustainable as a business. And so, and, and this is very true for the lifestyle businesses that your listeners have. And the outdoor industry is a, you know, a great business to study for dysfunction. And so we have to be, you know, I think there's a lot of, until most of us are running the business for a while, we don't really understand the true the true cost involved in delivering a product. Yeah, and, and you know, I think like one of the things I suffer from is undervaluing what we do. Whether it's you know the ad space on Bike Rumor or my time when I'm doing a little bit of consulting or design work for others, you know, like I look at what my brother charges. <laughs> it's many multiples of what I do. I'm like, oh well, he's got overhead, he's got an agency. I'm like, it's just me, but. It's yeah, it's kind of tough sometimes for people to charge what they're worth because they almost feel bad. Like, I, or yeah, they're not you have used the, to paying that, right? Right. And if you were in a different peer group, right? So let's just say you were in, um, I don't know, office furniture design or something like that. You would you would have a completely different pricing structure for exactly the same work that you do yeah. because you went online and you saw how much people are charging for the same product, and then you would adjust your prices to match their prices. You just happen to be around people who are um, so enthusiastic that they're not intelligent. <laughs> so, <laughs> your prices, the peer group, you're in the wrong peer group. Yeah, well, and it's and everybody's service is a little bit different too. Sometimes, right? Or their their product, whether it's a, a service or a physical product, it's like if you're creating something new. Sometimes it's kind of hard to figure that pricing out until you've sold it for a little while. Yeah, well, I, and that's what that was us, and I I think. You know, it's a little bit different in the climbing gym business because it's such a um, a volume based product. But in the guiding business, I realized over time that to go premium was the way to go, and you attract a higher, uh, you know, a, a client who could pay more. So that was the the model that we had in that industry. Yeah. Well, let's stay on pricing for a little bit because I did have some pricing questions about the gym. Sure. So I was looking up because we were coming out here. We we're planning to get out to Denver a few days earlier and we we're going to go check out your gym. And um, I think it's golden. And uh, I was looking at it and looking at the pricing. I was like, all right, well, we're going to have it's going to be like five of us and we're going to have to rent shoes and harnesses and do the lesson and all that. And, and by the end of the day, you know, we'd be there, probably get a couple of hours out of it before the kids were like, all right, tired, done. I was like be like 200 bucks or more really yeah. and um like yeah i'm not sure i want to spend 200 bucks for a couple of hours of entertainment right. and um it, and there's another aspect that i want to get to in a minute but it's like like how do you do that because i feel like there's probably for some people that even if they're just going on their own or they're bringing a friend you know it still might be a 40 50 outing which to me might be a barrier to entry for people who aren't quite sure to just try it. So like, how do you overcome that? Or, or is that even a concern? Do you just have enough business of fanatics coming in and out? Well, I think, so the a climbing gym is a kind of a unique model, right? So you're really, um, you're incentivizing 
not that everybody anybody's ever thought this on this level, but <laughs> you really ultimately want to have more members. So you really a lot of the day pass user is really subsidizing the members experience. And so the only way you can keep membership prices lower is to have lots of other, you know, profit centers. And one of those would be things like day passes or birthday parties or, you know, rental shoes, etc. Um, but really the person who gets the highest value out of a climbing experience, you know, take out the emotional part of it, etc. But the highest value is really going to be the member. And right. so, yeah, so there's lots of people. I mean, it's the same thing. Like if you, if you buy a ski a season's pass, right. And you know, like, you you're it's the people buying day passes that are really subsidizing the season pass holder yeah so is the business model sustainable on the if you were only doing only selling memberships or do you need those other things to support the business well i don't know if it's sustainable is the right word i think it's it's also to what the market wants you to supply so the market wants day passes and the market wants rental shoes and the market wants snickers bars and water bottles and all the other stuff so, right. yeah, because look, a lot of people are, um, especially today, you know, the ADD athlete. So you're t- take you and I out of it because we're fanatics, but most people, you know, they go to yoga on Tuesdays, they go to CrossFit on Thursdays, you know, 20 of them go biking together on Saturday and then six of them go to the climbing gym on Sunday. So they, they are participating in multiple activities every single week or every single month. And so you know, they don't, just like they don't want to own a car anymore, they don't want to have, you know, all of their recreation dollars spent in one, in one sport. So they want to rent the sport for the day. Right. Yeah. So the other thing I noticed too, because I was looking, is it didn't look to me like there were any auto belays at the Gold We don't location. have auto belays because, uh, <laughs> well, we had a terrible week about 15 years ago where some poor kid who and I will never forget this guy because he was so great he worked for us full time for years and years but he he, uh, he happened to be on, on duty when two people on different days climbed to the top of the wall without connecting themselves to the auto belay and then fell and hit the ground and so you know this poor guy spent more time with mops and you know Oof. ambulances than most people ever should in their lives and so like this is just it's just crazy for some reason and there's been you know it's the same thing like you've driven down a highway and don't remember what you did for the last 10 miles right oh yeah people's getting these zones and they um they don't double check themselves and this has happened in lots of climbing gyms um with auto blaze and so we're like we're just we don't need this in our lives anymore we don't need to have you know people hitting the floor and bleeding so let's just get rid of auto blaze yeah and is it well i'm curious like what's what are the statistics like how often does that happen because well i think it's pretty it's it's so there's two in risk right there's two uh uh, you know things in or like whatever buckets of risk right so one is consequence so if you fall 40 feet through the air and you land on the ground there's a super high consequence and then there's incidents and incidents of the, the like you're asking right now, what's the percentage of times this happens? Mm-hmm. So it's extremely rare, but when it does happen, the consequence is extreme. So we made the, the choice as a company to get rid of these things. And they, you know, look, that was, they were super expensive, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was like, we just threw money away and we got rid of them, but we didn't like the consequence part of it. Yeah. Um, well, and the reason I was asking about those is because, again, we were going to be going with, you know, kids ranging from like 7 to 12, yep. and it would be my wife and I with them, and I'm like, well, none of them can blame me, yep. <laughs> so yep. I'm going to be spending 90% of my time blaming everybody else, and then my wife might blame me a few times, and so... Like, I'm not going to get a whole lot out of that other than the enjoyment of being with the kids, right? But, like, sure. I want to go yeah. and climb, too. And so, I, you know, we, yeah. we kind of seek those out. And I feel like, and again, and I understand where you're coming from, but the flip side of that is almost like, a, do you think you're losing business to other climbing gyms in those areas, those markets oh, where you have I, places? I, look, I don't doubt that at all, but I'm totally fine with that. I, and I think, look, let's just go beyond our circumstances. And every business owner is going to face this, right? That you can't be all things to all people 
you and it's sometimes those decisions are really hard to make but the flip side if you try to be all things to all people you might find that your uh your product is not you're just not you might not be as proud as your product as you would be otherwise so true no, yeah. that's a good point yeah. So uh, now I'm curious, and this gets to the point where this is how I first found out about you was there was an article in something outside online, maybe, or, or another one. And it was um, about the new one that you're opening up in the Denver area where you guys basically are taking over an old sports authority location, which is massive. And I, if I read right, you guys are going to that will be the largest indoor climbing center in the United States when you're done. Yeah, we're literally taking over their headquarters. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> That's yeah, even better. Yeah. Even make it even more symbolic, right? Right. So, and and so it sounded like there was some struggle with getting that location. People didn't want to lease that size of a building to you until recently. And so maybe you could tell yes. the story. Like, what were, were you looking for something that big or how did that come about? Well, we've been, go, go all the way back to 2006, we opened a climbing gym at 11,000 square feet of floor space in Rockville, Maryland. And in 2011, we had the opportunity to take an additional, right next door, an additional 18,000 square feet. So we went from 11,000 square feet to 29,000 square feet. And we opened the doors and the 18,000 extra square feet were full. So we're like, holy cow, like how big can you build these things? And so we then, you know, so that's always been in the back of our mind. Um, and so in, Last year, we opened a 45,000 square foot, which is literally an acre of, of, you know, of area. We opened a 45,000 square foot in Northern Virginia. And then, um, you know, we're not tied to only opening 50,000 square foot facilities, but if everything works out and we can find the perfect 50,000 square foot facility, we'll take it. So this is 52,000 square foot in, in Denver that we're going to take over. That's crazy. And it's, uh, I, I imagine you'll have no problem getting people in there for a, a metro the size of Denver, but yeah, that's, um, we, so we think, <laughs> yeah. So when you go from something that's like a third of that size to a 50 something thousand square foot gym, like what are some of the new challenges that come along with uh, that? Well, the whole sport has evolved in our, you know, in my lifetime as a gym owner. So in, when we opened the business, the first climbing gym that we opened, which was 1997, you know, back then climbing gyms were clubhouses for climbers. And so think, you know, like CrossFit box today, right? So, you know, maybe the bathrooms, the toilets in the bathrooms flushed, you know, <laughs> so, and everybody was, you know, we were, we couldn't afford rents or high rents. We went to the cheapest possible place to open our, our climbing gyms. Now we're able to afford bigger rents. We're able to, to um, you know, our, 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 you know, know the whole market has changed. So we're able to go to, you know, we don't have to be in the C locations. We can go for the A locations, etc. So, you know, the evolution has been slow. But I think if you went, if you just saw it, what existed in the mid '90s to see what's existed today, it would seem dramatic to change. But for those of us who've been here, it's just been a slow step, like one little evolutionary step after the next. Right. As far as staffing and stuff goes, does it, when you triple the size of a facility, does your staff size triple or does it still mainly people checking in and out at the beginning and then you're just free to roam? Uh, th that really depends more on the amount of, the, the amount of your revenue, that the percent of your revenue that comes from membership versus, you know, classes or other stuff. So, um, we like to staff heavy, like we prefer to have more people on staff than less. And it's our belief that that improves customer service. If people are a little bit bored, they're ecstatic to have a chance to interact with customers. If you overwork your staff, then they don't have time to interact with customers or the energy to interact with customers. So. Cool. Is it you know, like birthday, you mentioned birthday parties and classes and stuff how much from a revenue standpoint you know you don't have to share exact numbers but like what percentage of the revenue to keep these businesses going comes from things like that versus just memberships well i'd say that's really changed over the course of the 20 years that we've been in business so maybe in the beginning that was maybe 25 percent of our income 
now it's probably half that. And I think it's really because membership have grown, like more and more people are attracted to the sport of climbing than they were 20 years ago. So you could actually have a, a business that's more membership focused than you could have gotten away with 20 years ago. How does that change like how you guys market the business or the kinds of services you offer? Like, Do you still have put some emphasis on getting parties? Like, Are you trying to grow that side of it? Because that, like, from what I've heard from people that own different types of gyms, you know, a trampoline gym, or I've got some friends that own a Ninja Warrior gym, like birthday parties are really profitable. Well, they're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because what people don't necessarily put together is that there's a lot of cost to a birthday party. So there's direct staff costs, right? Because you have people, you know, playing, et cetera. Um, you're, you're really, I, I, I don't know how any, you know, look, now we're, we're, we're talking like we're a bunch of MBAs here, but you, you really are better off having a more membership-driven business. Now, the health club industry is a little too membership-driven. So a, your traditional health club might have 80%, or your traditional health club would love to have a mix of 80% membership and 20% additional services. And um, the, the more they're that 80-20 mix, the more profitable they generally are. If they're 90-10, then they will probably be a little less profitable. And then our, you know, in our industry, if a lot of, I mean, the old days, people were lucky to get the 35% of their income was membership. Now, I think a lot, most people are probably above 50% of their income as membership. So in some ways, we have a better model than the health club industry. Um, but, you know, it kind of depends on, on an individual unit level. But yeah, hopefully you have over 50% of your, your, your income comes from membership. Yeah. So have you seen, because like you said, more people are getting into this and, and it seems to like more people in general are at least aware of fitness. And I think CrossFit helped a ton with that. Just getting people to try something new. And so with that and with you guys doing well in opening new locations, are you seeing increased competition? Well, yes, and I it's an interesting thing. I think there's you know, like I I like, you know, that there's competition amongst the premium brands and people who are doing multiple units. I worry, and this is just on a personal level, I worry for the people who are just trying to open their first climbing gym. And, you know, a classic example is recently I dealt with a a single unit owner who's been in business for about a year and a half and he was losing $10,000 a month. And so it cost him $10,000 more to operate than he was bringing in. And, you know, I was, you know, you went, you know, kind of just digging deeper into these numbers trying to help him understand how to at least not lose money every month. You know, there was a lot of things that he did, like it's, you know, he doesn't come from the climbing world and he, made some assumptions about location and a bunch of other things and he spent you know millions of dollars to get open and now he can't there's nothing he can do besides go bankrupt huh. and Ooh. i worry about these because the cost look remember it cost me four hundred thousand dollars to open my first gym and now we're spending you know millions to open a climbing gym so these are gigantic investments and how people get into them without having you know experience you know, it just blows my mind. Yeah. Well, that's interesting you brought up locations. So where I live in Greensboro, North Carolina, you know, we have an indoor climbing gym and it's, it's pretty decent. They've got some tall walls and, um, one or two auto blaze, which are cool, but it's yeah. the, for me, I like <laughs> it still. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, it's funny to say it's like literally five miles from my house, but it's all the way on the other side of town. So for us, it's like, Whereas here, I laugh because I'm looking in Denver and something 20 miles away is close. But, uh, you know, it's what it is, is it's out, it's past the airport, it's on the outskirts of town. So it's in where a lot of warehousing areas are, which is cheap land and cheap buildings. And um, is that, do you guys seek out that kind of property or do you go for more high profile, high traffic locations that are going to cost more? Well, I mean, our models change over 20 years, right? So no, now we go for... We, we want the A location. Yeah. And that's hard to find. I mean, we, it takes, 
you know, you could be spending years working on trying to get the A location. Yeah, especially for something like that with, with the ceilings tall enough, I imagine it's probably one of the yeah. bigger challenges, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or you, I mean, like, in, you know, this, we've done this before too, but sometimes you just take a shorter building and you, you have to literally demo the roof and put a new roof on, which means new walls, new everything. So, yeah. Yeah. Is that, um, I mean, obviously it's working for you, but I imagine that makes the financials on the business a lot more challenging when you go from somewhere that's probably a fraction of the cost in square footage and operating costs to, you know, let's just yeah. say like a downtown location. Is that is that one of the problems you see with people trying to open the gyms now is they want to be in those A locations, but like... <clears throat> Yes, there's a lot to this, right? So clearly the bar has been raised. So even like the finishes, like let's, let's say, you know, you have two bathrooms exactly the same size. Well, if somebody's put nice tile in there and, you know, whatever, other nicer fixtures, then he spent more money per square foot. If everybody had terrible bathrooms like they were in the 1990s, then, you know, you, you're paying one quarter of the amount of square foot. And then you just keep, take that idea and you just keep adding that finish idea to the, climbing walls the amount of holds to you know every other aspect of your business and suddenly you know the cost of opening is so great and uh, you know that yeah it, it's it's a, i think it's a very i am so happy that i am not trying to open my first climbing gym today all right so what else have you learned about opening this type of business that has helped you over the years besides just making it a, a nicer place to be oh i think it's all about uh your, your staff so you know not only giving them you know education and customer service but you know hiring managing your staff um yeah there's so much aspects of that that you know we've learned some of that stuff you know absolutely the hard way and you know it, we've had to look outside of us and outside of climbing gyms to get as much information as we possibly can about improving customer service. Right. And so what are you guys looking at in terms of future growth? I know you're opening this other gym and, and, and the whole indoor scene is continuing to grow, but like at some point there will be the next new thing. Is that like, are you guys trying to build the next new thing in indoor climbing or are you happy with what it is for today? No, no, I think it's a constant state of evolution. And, you know, you, we, we love that. I mean, we love the fact that we're constantly being forced to learn. I mean, the, I mean, this is the climber's mentality, right? The climber's mentality is like, put me up against a challenge that's greater than myself and then let me, you know, adapt myself to be able to meet the challenge. So whether it's a boulder problem or, you know, being the first American to solo an 8,000-meter peak, like, you have to transform yourself. And so none of us want the sport to stop transforming or the business to stop transforming. We're psyched about, and we don't necessarily know exactly what the future is going to be, but we're excited to, to, to be part of that. Yeah. So how do you keep it fresh for the customers? Do you guys just change up the placement of the holds constantly? Well, yeah, that's the stuff that's been going on forever. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, it, every customer has a different expectation of you. So, I think we just try to create, you know, it's, it's a lot of stuff. Like it used, you know, <laughs> like, look, it used to be a major step forward in the sport of indoor climbing when you cleaned your bathrooms, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's like, okay, wow, we kind of solved that riddle. Like, you know, and it's obviously a major thing about the quality of the route setting and then the, you know, the quality of the classes that you teach and the quality of the customer service that you offer people and, you know, adding fitness areas to it and adding yoga classes to it and all this other stuff. So, yeah, we're, we're constantly evolving. Yeah, yeah. If I remember right, from looking at the one golden on the website, it's like if you're a member or, or maybe even with just a day pass, like the yoga, the weight room, and, and all of that stuff is included. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, totally. Which is really cool. So to me, like, that's a nice added bonus if you've got the time to spend, you know, half and, a day and there. Most, and, and go back to most, you know, the ADD athlete kind of thing that we're going through right now. But most people want the variety. And I mean, look, you're a big cyclist, but you're also an outdoor athlete and a functional athlete. And, you know, you're a social being like there's all these different things that you really want out of a place that you're a part of this community. So, 
the more that we can make you know the 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 hundred mile runner and the hundred mile biker happy in our gym you know through yoga and fitness and all sorts of stuff the more we make the ninja warriors happy etc then i was gonna i was gonna ask you about that if you guys were getting into some of the ninja warrior stuff well, we don't do uh, we yes, but we don't have like Ninja Warrior obstacles in there. But since you're an expert in Ninja Warriors, you understand <laughs> that almost everybody who wins is a climber, right? So yes, we we have um, you know look when Megan Martin was 14 years old, she came in third at a climbing competition in one of our gyms, right? Um, uh, Jeff Britton is who came in, you know, he was the first guy to get up Mount Midoriyama, but didn't. And Isaac Caldera beat him a couple years ago. He worked for me for years. I mean. You know, Jake Murray, you just keep going on the list, you know, like Brian Arnold, all these guys, the Wolfpack guys, you know, et cetera. That we're, this is a very, you know, I don't know, incestuous is not the best possible word for this, but, you know, like we're all, we're all connected together. We're all part of this one big community. And it's cool that there's just different ways of expressing your athleticism now than there used to be. So, yeah, cool. Well, so I've got a, a few um, kind of my normal final questions are sort of like, you know, some challenges and advice for others. But before that, one of the things I noticed from reading through your kind of resume of climbing adventures was it, there was as many of them or that you succeeded on, there were maybe even more where you guys got to a certain point and had to turn back, whether it was weather or equipment or, or something else. And I'm just thinking like, that's very similar to maybe a lot of people's business ideas where you get to a certain point, you've invested so much time and energy into something. And then, you know, the smart ones maybe realize, okay, you know what, this just isn't going to work. And there's, there's that term sunk cost. And I imagine for something as physical as climbing one of the biggest mountains in the world, when you have invested years of training and everything else into getting there and thousands and thousands of dollars that there's this huge emotional toll on having to make that call and turn around and not just at the moment but then also afterwards yeah. like you know for somebody who's dealing with that whether it's business or an adventure or whatever like how do you process that in the moment how do you deal with that for the months afterward cry early and often <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just a grieving process, right? So you got to go through the process. Like, don't deny any of the stages of grief. And, you know, it's fine to feel sorry for yourself for a while and, you know, kick some stones and, you know, like, yeah, you, you have to do that. I mean, I tell, you know, like for myself, the, I mean, look, I literally lived this less than a month ago. I was, you know, summit day, perfect day, feeling like a, a monster and, you know, we ran out of rope 1500 feet from the summit of the world's third highest peak, you know, and it would have been a big deal if I had summited, you know, like in terms of my own personal resume and all of that kind of crap. Right. So, yeah, I mean, luckily for me, there's my life has got more elements than just mountaineering in it. You know, I have an amazing family. I have an amazing business. I have, you know, all this other stuff that, you know, amazing friends, etc. So I think I feel sorry for people who are defined by one thing. So don't let yourself be defined by one thing. Go out and, you know, yes, it's cool to build a business, but you don't have to be an entrepreneur. I mean, people should not be misled that this is going to be the panacea for personal happiness or wealth building or whatever it happens to be. You know, there's lots of things in life that can make you happy, you know, satisfied with yourself. So, and I think having more than one thing that defines you is, is, is you know, critically important. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, so over all of the business adventures that you've had, because I'm sure there's many, many more on the the outdoor side of it, but for the the business attempts that you've made and things, what are maybe some of the two biggest challenges that you faced over the years, and how did you overcome them? I, I think the first one was realizing that to make a business sustainable, it, it can't be about you as a business founder. So we, you know, lost a lot of money early on by recognizing that we had to scale the size of the operation to be able to, you know, to, to grow towards its potential. 
and the more it was about the company and the less about the founder, which is you know me, the the more successful we were. So getting out of you know I don't know, if, and I hate to just use the word ego because I think it oversimplifies the thing, but recognizing that the business isn't about you, it's about your team and your customers. So that was a, a big thing. And then I'd say another big thing was really understanding, you know, the, that at some point you, like we needed to find more, more and more partners that we brought on on different levels, whether you were literally a partner or just a, you know, a, a good counsel, the more partners I had to go through this journey, the more successful I was. So I've been really blessed by, you know, the cool thing about mountaineering as a, you know, the, client guide relationship that you get it you have these incredible experiences with just phenomenally successful people and it was having all these super successful people that were content area experts there to help me when i had a challenge and that you know we had the relationship that made them want to help me that was critical to our success as well right and i think maybe are you kind of talking about some of the television stuff with that no i don't think about television stuff no, I was literally thinking about it in terms of, although that's so funny because that is exactly an example of that. I mean, I, I was lifting weights at a good friend's house. It was a guy who started as a client and became a, one of my best friends and probably is my best friend. And, uh, you know, we were lifting weights at a five or nine o'clock on a Friday night. And he's like, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go back to K2. And he's like, really? You should film it for TV. <laughs> He picks up the phone and calls one of his buddies. He's literally standing at a, uh, a, a, a urinal at a hockey game in Boston. <laughs> the guy answers the phone because when this guy calls you, you answer the phone. And then, you know, 36 hours later, I was at the, you know, in the conference room at NBC Sports with the president of NBC Sports and his 16 year vice presidents. And, uh, you know, we had a TV deal. And it all happened literally from Friday night at 9 o'clock at night to Monday morning at 9 o'clock in the morning. Nice. So, and it was all because of relationships. Yeah. Well, and that it's funny because that actually segues back to a, a note I'd written down on um, that's relevant to the first challenge that you mentioned, which was building a brand that's not just about you. Because I was curious, like, you know, you've done some television series and shows and specials um, for the big networks. And then was that one of the reasons why you think some of your guiding business grew because people wanted to come hike with you or, or take a trip with you? Uh, you know, yes, but not, I, I, it's hard to really look into the minds of other people. I, I would say almost all of our business came through word of mouth and ultimately it was the quality of the experience that this person had with you, which was more important than the fact that you had summited K2. Right. So, um, yeah. So I think it was the, it was the, there's a lot of this fantasy camp stuff that goes on in the world. Like I do tons of these, you know, keynote speeches and stuff like that. And quite often they'll bring in all these amazing people like, you know, Tony Dungy and Roger Goodell from the NFL and, you know, Jim Cramer and Maria Bartiromo from CNBC. So you're on the stage with these people, you know, the Shark Tank guys, etc. And those people, you know, you go through an experience with the audience, and in the end, the audience rates everybody. And they say, "Oh my goodness, this guy gets a you know Warner gets a ten, and these other guys get a four. And it's like, why? Be well, because he actually gave me more, because he was more invested in me than he was in himself. So you could easily go to, you know, Kilimanjaro with somebody who's summited Everest a hundred times, and they could be a complete and utter knucklehead, you know, selfish, narcissistic, egomaniac, sociopath. So why do you want to go with those people when you go with somebody who's actually you know, cares about you is there for you the whole time. All right. That's good advice. Um, I'm curious about the, the speeches and the, the classes that you lead classes is the wrong word. My vocabulary is totally failing me today, but, um, those processes that where you go, you know, Google hires you to come in and and lead their group on a a journey of self-improvement. How did you start that side of your business? Well, that, you know, it really started literally from taking people out in the woods and learning how people work and think, et cetera, and how to build teams. But 
you know, I taught leadership at the Wharton School of Business, which is one of the top three MBA programs in the country for 16 years. And during that time, you know, obviously I was surrounded by an amazing peer group and, um, you know, constantly wanted to improve what I could give to the students during that process. And so, you know, it was a, again, it was iterative, right? Like one thing led to the next and all of a sudden you're in a conversation with somebody else. And then, you know, I did a lot of work. I mean, literally the, you know, we, we spent weeks training groups in the, you know, covert and special ops groups and stuff like that. So when you're, when you're surrounded by this, you know, group of people that is so crazy amazing, you have to put in tons of intellectual energy into that to be able to, to, to just hang with them. So yeah, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a 20 to 30 year process of developing that skill set. Is that when you're with that level of person, is that intimidating? And like, do you ever freeze up or does that just kind of like raise your game? Well, look, I'll tell you right now, if you have a couple of good Everest stories or a couple of good K2 stories, then you'd be amazed at who wants to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's the same thing as, you know, like we talked about before with going on a trip with you. It's like ultimately is what can you give this group of people that helps them move forward? And that's where I really spent the most of my, you know, personal amount of time. Like, yeah, it was cool to you know, be the sage on the stage, but I really wanted to be the guide by their side. So, you know, I, I, I love sharing and engaging in super high level conversations about anything from a topic of, you know, business or leadership or whatever it happens to be. And so, you know, I think that there's a, you know, the, the way my mind works and the needs of this group of people had just happened to be, you know, pretty well matched. Yeah, how much of your time is spent doing those leadership things now? Um, it depends. This year, uh, a little less because we're so busy growing the business. But I'd say, in general, about twenty-five engagements a year, and um, that those, you know, it's the world's best telling, you know, paying paper route. So that you know that you you, you could do twenty-five of those days a year, and you will never have to do anything else. So. Yeah, I was going to ask if you don't want to share and, or, or share what you can, like, because I know some people's speaking fees are six, seven figures. Like, how do you price that service to other groups? Well, uh, <laughs> I have done a lot of different things. I and I charge, you know, well into the six figures. So I, or excuse me, not six figures, the, the five figures. So. Um, I've done everything from you can't afford me. And then they're like, what do you mean I can't afford you? Like, you don't think we make, we can afford you. <laughs> like, and I've done stuff like, hmm, well, somebody just called and paid me this. So let me just raise it by $5,000 the next person that calls. So there's lots of different things I've done over the years. And now I've pretty much settled into, I think, a pretty sweet spot. And I'm pretty content to hang out in that sweet spot. Right on. All right. Well, it's, it's been just a hair over an hour. I want to respect your time. So when you're my last question is then let's finish with a bang so when you're at these leadership events and you're already dealing with people who are performing at a crazy high level like what are one or two little things that you give them that help them raise their game even further something that we can use yes so i i and this really so that the world needs better leaders right so whether you're at wharton or you're at the cia or any of these other places right everybody is trying to scale up the amount of good leaders on their team. And so um, we have worked really hard at trying to, in the perfect world, whether you're West Point or anything else, you would actually have a series of ingredients. Like, okay, we put a pinch of this and a pinch of that together, all of a sudden we'd have a great leader. I don't think we've actually gotten to the point where we have the recipe, but I think we have a really good idea what the main ingredients are. And you might have your own words for this, but we've really you know, distill it down to four main characteristics that a good leader has. Number one is they're passionate. They're so passionate about the mission of the organization that they're going to put the mission of the organization ahead of their personal desires. And then the second one is you have to be visionary. You have to be able to tell people where they're going and you have to be able to constantly change. You know, the vision changes because the, you know, the environment is constantly changing, especially today. So you have to be really excellent at crafting and communicating a vision. 
The third one is that you have to really know how to partner with people. And the two most important words in any partnership are trust and caring. So if you can create an environment where people trust each other, where you trust people first and then they'll start trusting you second. You know, if you really care about people, then you're going to create great, strong partnerships. And then lastly, you have to help groups of people understand how not just to work hard, but to work smart as well. And that's really a reflective process. Like, you know, I've spent a lot of time at the NFL. Like, you, you know, their whole Monday is just thinking about, you know, like, you know, examining film, looking at next week, you know, et cetera. So they would never think about going into a game without having practiced first and analyzing, you know, constantly analyzing absolutely everything. So it's the same thing with the Navy SEALs, et cetera. So we have to be able to, you know, you know, facilitate a process where people can learn from what they've just been through to prepare for the next big challenge. So it's passion, vision, partnership, and perseverance. Awesome. Chris, man, thank you so much. I appreciate your time. No problem, Tyler. Good luck to you and enjoy Colorado. Yeah, thank you. Chris drops a lot of knowledge in this episode, so my show notes are long for this one. Be sure to check them out at thebuildcycle.com and hit the blog link or just search Warner. He also gave me links to some of his leadership and climbing videos, talks, book, and a free worksheet you can download to help fine tune your team building skills. It's all in the show notes. One of my favorite quotes from this episode is, the business isn't about you, it's about your team and your customers. What can you give people that moves them forward? It's this mentality that's led to much of Chris's success as a speaker and guide. By helping and truly caring for others while on his expeditions, those same folks were happy to return a favor or make an assist when Chris was trying to build his other businesses and relationships. Those led to film and TV deals and high-paying speaking gigs. It's also what makes for a great team, which ends up improving customer experience and keeps your business growing. Chris mentions Ninja Warrior, which teased up next week's episode perfectly. I interview Noah Kaufman of the Wolfpack Ninja Tour on how he's taking his team's fame on American Ninja Warrior and building an events and lifestyle business around that, which tees up my request for you. Can you take 10 seconds and hit that subscribe button on iTunes? That's how I'm able to grow this podcast and keep getting such amazing guests. And let me know what you want to hear more of. Hit me up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Build Cycle. Thanks for listening. Remember to focus on moving others forward. And as always, keep building.